Well, we're going to start with the question, will you go? Will you go? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter six, and that's where we'll be today. And as we look at Isaiah chapter six, I really want us to think about that question, will we go? Will I go? Why do we go? Why do we live our life on mission? Why do we live our lives in this way? This is clearly something that is an issue. A recent study done by the Malfers Research Group says that 84% of evangelical churches are plateaued or declining. That means that only 16% of the churches that believe they're supposed to be reaching their community, that believe they're supposed to be spreading the gospel, are actually Growing And many of those churches that are growing are actually really just growing from conversion growth. That means that people are leaving other churches to join their church. Even in the past few years, our church has experienced a great deal of numerical growth, but most of that growth has been from believers joining our church from other churches or moving into this area. We have not really seen a great movement of people who did not go to church, who did not walk with Jesus, coming to faith in Jesus. And I would also add that the virus has exposed the reality of how few people are actually living their life in this way. If people were really living this, their life this way, proclaiming the gospel, then our inability to meet together, our inability to have as many people on campus would not have affected the number of baptisms, the number of people professing faith in Christ. And yet we see, indeed, that not many of us are driven by or revolving our lives around living sent, around living our lives on mission God. And so will we change that? Will we go? And I want to start by asking you to consider the glory of God. Consider the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Uzziah was a long-standing king who led Israel through a great time of stability and prosperity and focus on God. But at the time he died, a pretty strong king was rising to power in Assyria, and they were becoming strong. And also the faithful people of God saw that God's people were beginning to walk away from him. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was a time of great uncertainty and great speculation of how bad things were going to get in Israel. But Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. In the year that King Uzziah died, God was still on his throne. Uzziah died. All rulers die. God does not. Isaiah says that he saw the, the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, I don't believe that Isaiah is physically seeing this. I believe that this is a vision. To have truly seen God on his throne would have been a departure from Hebrew understanding of God. No one actually sees God and would have certainly been noted here in the text. But in this vision that Isaiah has, God's glory fills the temple. That is, the temple or any building built by man cannot contain the glory of God. Isaiah is having a vision of the glory of God. And in this vision, he sees seraphim. Now, no one knows for certain what these creatures really are. The word seraphim comes from the root word seraph, which means to be burning. And so likely these beings appear as if they are inflamed. Given the grandeur of the scene here and the power of the angelic hosts that are talked about, we should right now remove the picture that we have of chubby winged babies fluttering around the throne of God. According to verse 4, when one of them speaks, the foundations of the temple shakes. There are no puny or silly or cute creatures in heaven, only magnificent ones. And notice what these magnificent, grand creatures do. They have six wings, and with two, they cover their eyes. And with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. They, these magnificent, grand creatures, probably far more amazing than anything we have seen with our eyes, cover their eyes in the presence of God because they cannot look at him and his holiness. They cover their feet because the ground and where God dwells is holy ground. And lastly, the text mentions, and I think that is important that it is mentioned last, they fly, and they call him holy, holy, holy. The repetition of the word holy here emphasizes the meaning, the point of his holiness. He is not just holy. He is holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Not only is his glory in the temple, but it is in the whole earth. The temple cannot, withhold, cannot hold the glory of God, and the whole earth cannot hold the glory of God. God's glory is beyond containing. If we go out at night and we look at the stars in the sky, we encounter but a glimpse of the glory of God. If we're quiet for a moment and we feel or hear our heart beating, we hear as we inhale and we exhale 
we see but a glimpse of the glory of God. As we take a look at history and we see that not only has God spoke about how things would be, but those things have indeed come to be. We see but a glimpse of the glory of God. As we read the word of God, and it speaks to us as if we were programmed to receive it, as if it were written to our hearts in a way that we cannot express in our words, we see but a glimpse of the glory of God. And as we look to Jesus and the person of Jesus, we see the glory of God. I pray that you feel and know and see the glory of God. Consider the glory of God. And when we consider the glory of God, we respond to the glory of God. Verse five says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the glory of God, and then Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is this time when things are turning in Israel, when all kings will be bad and the Assyrians will ultimately rule over Israelites, leading to even further rule. And in this moment, Isaiah has what we considered we can consider a woe moment. Now, when I read that word woe in the Bible, I always think of Blossom from the 90s and Joey who says, whoa, I'm just trying to help you with what I think when I read the Bible, okay? But Isaiah has this woe moment. That word means that, you know, I really am, I'm damned. I am cursed. I, I feel that. And, and Isaiah has this woe moment here because of the distance between the holiness of God, the glory of God, and himself. And he has this woe moment not because of the consequences of his sin. He has this woe moment not because of a family member or friend who is telling him about his sin. He has this woe moment not because of the fact that his life isn't the way that he hoped it would be. Those things certainly get our attention, but they are not what create this woe moment in our life. Isaiah says what creates this woe moment for him. He says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And this woe moment that we have shows us that we are lost Not because of the consequences of our sin, not because of the guilt from a family member, not because our life isn't what we hoped it would be, but because we realize in that moment the holiness of God and our separation from God. In David's famous psalm of confession in Psalm 51, David says, 
to God against you and you only have I sinned. Now certainly David had sinned against Uriah. David had sinned against Bathsheba, but David says in that confession against you and you only have I sinned because the ultimate problem with our sin is that we have sinned against a holy God separating ourselves from him. A few years ago, I sat in a coffee shop with a, with a guy who attended our church who it had been revealed to his wife and to others that he had had multiple affairs over the course of several years. And so we sat together and I listened to him talk for about an hour about how he got in the situation he was in and how he shouldn't have done what he did to his wife and he shouldn't have done what he did to those other women and consequences potentially on his career. And I didn't really say anything, which if you know me is a miracle that I sat there for about an hour and didn't really say anything. So when he got done talking after about an hour, I said, let's pray. And he said, wait, 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 wait. You didn't really say anything. What, what do you think about all this? I said, do you really wanna know what I think about all this? He said, yeah, that's why I asked you. I said, in all of your confession, I never heard you say, I spit in the face of a holy God. God gave me this life to live for him, and I have said, I don't care what you think, God. Because the ultimate problem with our sin is not the consequences on this earth, is not the fact that it changes the way our family members or friends view us, not that we don't have the life that we want on earth. The ultimate problem with our sin is that a holy God exists and we have separated ourselves from him. And when we see the glory of God, we should respond by saying, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The answers that they have for that separation are not the answer. Only God can do something about the separation. And so we consider the glory of God and we respond to the glory of God with that. But we also consider the mercy of God. Isaiah chapter six, verse six says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The imagery of coal touching his mouth represents purification. And the guilt, the text tells us, is taken away and it is atoned for. In this moment, Isaiah's guilt of being 
lost, of being a man of unclean lips is atoned for. But notice that Isaiah did not do anything for this to happen. Isaiah did not pray a prayer in the right way. Isaiah didn't pray enough prayers. Isaiah didn't give enough money. Isaiah didn't do the right deeds. He did nothing. God did everything. Jonathan Edwards says that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who atones for us. God is the one who purifies us. And his word says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see that illustrated in Isaiah and we see that told to us over and over again in the scriptures. If you're a child, if you're a teenager and you are living a life of deception, hiding things from your parents and other adults in your life, if you confess your sins to God today, he is faithful to forgive you of your sins. If you have moved into young adulthood, and sexuality is driving you and causing you to forsake what you know to be right before God. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you're married and those sexual cravings and sexual perversion you thought would go away when you got married. And you're hiding it. And you feel the shame of it and the guilt of it. If you will f confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Perhaps it's greed and envy that is driving you, filling you with jealousy for others, constantly comparing yourself to others and constantly causing you to lack contentment in Christ. If you will confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Perhaps your life is centered around you and not the God who breathes life into you, if you will confess your sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just finished a series called Fulfilled where we talked about really what Christmas is. The Christmas shows us that God is with us. The Christmas shows us that God is for us. And ultimately we see that God wants to work through us. In verse 8, Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, God here either refers to himself in the plural or is including his angels, but it is clear that God has a mission in mind. Listen, God 
has a mission in mind. That is evident from the book of Genesis to Revelation, that God has a mission in mind. And the question that God has is whom shall I send and who will go for us? That God would forgive us of our sins and that God would invite us on mission for him shows his incredible mercy. And so as we consider the mercy of God, we also respond to the mercy of God. And Isaiah says in verse eight, here I am, send me. He didn't ask, well, what, am I, what, are you exact, what exactly do you want me to do? He didn't say, what am I supposed to do? He didn't say, who's going to be there? The question was from God, whom shall I send and who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am. Look no further, I am right here, send me. Now next week, we will talk about things that hold us back from living our life in that way. But Isaiah sees the glory of God. Isaiah considers the glory of God. Isaiah considers the mercy of God on his life. And Isaiah responds to the mercy of God by saying, do with me what you will. Our response to the glory and mercy of God is a change in how we view ourselves and the purpose for which we live. This is also called repentance. Our response to the glory of God and the mercy of God is a change in how we view ourselves and the purpose for which we live. This is also called repentance. That word repentance has gotten a bad rap because a lot of times when people hear that word, they think turn or burn, that's what it means to repent. But repentance actually means in the Greek to change your mind or your purpose. It means that you are having a change of heart and you are no longer living for yourself, but you're living for something else. And when God uses it, means you are now living for him. And a life of repentance where we say, I'm now living for you, leads to us being on mission for him. Now, I wanna read the last few verses for today. And as I do this, I want you to take note of an important concept before I read these verses. And that is this, that faithfulness is greater than fruitfulness. That faithfulness is more important than fruitfulness. Verse nine, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God calls Isaiah to go and proclaim the glory of God and the mercy of God, knowing that many people will not hear it. There wasn't a revival. There wasn't a bunch of people who turned their way. In fact, really what Isaiah was doing was 
enabling people to realize they did not have an excuse for the way that they lived because the mercy of God was available to them, and yet their hearts grew dull, and they turned from this. And what I am telling you today is that there is no guarantee of fruit. If you live your life this way, that family member may always resist you. That friend may want to have nothing to do with you. Our church may not grow very much. And so we need to live our lives, yes, trying to be fruitful, hoping that we'd be fruitful, evaluating why we are, are not fruitful, making sure that we know what faithful means, and keeping on, and keeping on. And people may give you reasons not to keep living like this. I mean, for Isaiah, they were unresponsive. There was no promise in his lifetime from God that they ever would be responsive to him. And there was opposition to Isaiah. In fact, most scholars believe that Isaiah was eventually sawed in half by his own king. So when you say, here I am, send me, think about that. And are we really willing to say, God, here am I, send me, even if it means that I might get sawed in two? Will you go? Will you say to God, here I am, send me with no promise of fruit, no promise of the people you love ever changing, no promise of recognition, no promise of whatever it may be. We don't go because of all of that. We go because our eyes have seen the king. Soren Kierkegaard said that we are like people who ride our carriage at night into the country to see the glory of God, but above us on either side of the carriage seat burns a gas lantern. As long as our head is surrounded by this artificial light, the sky overhead is empty of glory. But if some gracious wind of the spirit blows out our earthly lights, then in our darkness, God's heavens are filled with stars. It is the lights of the things of this world that distract us from seeing the fullness of the glory of God. And what we need is to see the glory of God. Look, a lot of times in evangelical circles, we say a phrase, I want revival, we want revival. Church, I want revival. I want revival in our church for there to be a new birth, a new life in our church. I want revival for the church in Niceville and in our community and beyond. But revival happens when we see God's glory. When we encounter and feel and know the glory of God, that is what leads to revival. And then we experience the brokenness and the repentance and the unspeakable joy of mercy 
and forgiveness, that is what leads to revival. And it, that leads to us wanting to see more and more of the glory of God. That is revival, a focus on God. That is really what it is. And so we need to continue to exalt him and lift him up in our personal lives, in our life groups, in our church. And the more that we see the glory of God, that's what really stirs people's hearts for him. It's not a slick campaign or anything like that. You know, a couple years ago, I was talking to someone about a church they go to in town and, and their words to me about why they went to that church was, well, that church makes God look cool. And I, and I hope, I'm gonna assume the best in what she was saying, but the problem with that statement is what you can be doing here and many churches and Christians are doing is trying to make God palatable to a generation that doesn't really want God. What I'm telling you is we don't need to change God's image. He does not need a makeover. He is holy. He is to be exalted. And when we exalt him for who true, he truly is, that's what stirs our hearts to live for him in a way that shows how worthy he truly is is. And for God to be great, for God to be holy, we don't do anything. He just is. For God to be holy, he just is. To say that God is holy means that God is God. When he was asked his name in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, he says, I am, I am. His being and his character are utterly undetermined by anything outside of himself. God is not holy because he keeps the rules. God writes the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God to us. And anything can become holy if God says so. It is set apart solely because God says so. Exodus 3 verse 5 says ground can be holy because God is there. Exodus 12 16 says assemblies of people can be holy because God sets them apart. Exodus 16 verse 23 says a day can be holy like the Sabbath, not because the day is special, but because God has set it apart. Exodus 19 verse 6 says God can make a nation holy. Exodus 28 verse 2 says garments can be holy. Nehemiah 11 verse 1 says a city can be holy. Psalm 105 verse 42 says that promises can be holy because God made them. 2 Peter 1 21 says that men can be declared holy. 1 Peter 3 5 says that women can be declared holy. 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 says that the scriptures are holy, not because they're in a book and a translation that was handed down to us, but because God breathed them himself. Romans 16 verse 16 says a kiss can be holy. So can Christie's kisses for me. And Jude verse 20 says our faith can be holy. Almost anything, let me rephrase that, anything can become holy if it is separated for the common and is set apart by God. And someday God will blow out and turn away every competing light, every competing glory, and he will make his holiness known in awesome splendor to every humble creature that exists. But listen, people, listen, church, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ. Isaiah says, you don't have to wait for that. You don't have to wait to be captivated by that. God says that we can be holy because he he declares us holy and he sets us apart for his purpose and his purpose is his mission. And so will you go for the glory of God or are you distracted from your purpose by meager things competing for your affection? Will you go for the glory of God or are you distracted from your purpose by meager things competing for your affection.
are the lanterns of the things of this world, dimming the glory of God in your sight? Is your career and your identity causing you to lose sight of God and his glory? Is the desire you have for your family or the image of your family causing you to lose sight of the glory of God? Are the lust for things of this world and your life blinding you to the glory of God? And I would say, is church and religion causing you to lose sight of the glory of God? God, you are glorious. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth cannot contain your glory. So God, I pray that we would recognize your holiness, your glory, and we would say, woe is me, for I am lost. I, I am a man of unclean lips. Yes, this nation, yes, the people around me, but I am a man of unclean lips. And the people that I dwell in do not have the answer because you yourself are the answer. And so God, it may hurt, but purify me. Atone for my sins. And God, here I am. Send me. As Paul prayed, whatever I do, may it be done for the glory of God. May our jobs be jobs that we live for your glory. May our family exist to reflect your glory. God, I want to crucify all the lust of the flesh for your glory. And may our church, may it exist for your glory. God, I pray right now that there's someone in this room that they've never felt, known, seen the glory of God until right now. That right now it almost, it feels like they're there. God, I remember that day in my apartment when I was 21 and I read Isaiah 6 and I felt your holiness. I just pray that they would just confess to you now, God, and remember that no matter what it is that they have done, you are faithful and just to forgive us 
of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is only possible because Jesus is our righteousness and Jesus is the glory of God. And if our eyes have seen the glory of God, may then we live our lives to that end. I pray this in his glorious name, amen.